Welcome to the Rev Engine Podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders get clarity on how to align sales and marketing, build a high performing revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth for their organizations. I'm your host, Jeff Davis, author of award winning book, Create Togetherness, and founder of Rev Engine. Let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, it is Jeff Davis with another episode of the Rev Engine podcast, where we help B2B CEOs and revenue leaders align sales and marketing, transform the revenue engine, and accelerate revenue growth. Today's guest is Andy Paul. We've met, I think, five or six years ago. Has it been that long? I was actually a guest on his podcast, yes. the, the Sales Name podcast with Andy uh, Paul, and I actually pulled up the episode. It's episode 618. That's 618. <laughs> Bridging the sales and marketing gap. I was doing a little bit of homework before the podcast. So the conversation is interesting and successful. Hopefully people will go over and jump to our other conversation on your podcast. So I, again, appreciate you and thank you for uh, allowing me to be on the show and talk about what I'm passionate about, uh, which is aligning sales and marketing. So I'll go through a couple things about Andy before I hand over the mic to him to kind of talk about his journey to where he is today, the work he's doing and what he's passionate about. So a couple things. He is the author of Sell Without Selling. And I love this description. It's a road tested framework for seizing control of how you sell by rejecting the outdated sales behaviors that buyers hate. So we're definitely, that's a theme for our conversation today. So I wanted to share that because I think it's very applicable to what we're going to talk about today. The other thing, obviously, he's a host of the Sales Enablement Podcast. He's a speaker, speaks on all things sales enablement, sales, just a bunch of different topics. I would consider him, I guess, a sales futurist. I don't know if he has positioned himself that way, but we'll see how that resonates with Andy. Sales modernist. How about that? Okay, we'll go with that. Sales modernist. I like that. Huh, interesting. So yeah, so that's all about Andy and how we met. So why don't I step out of the way, as I always say, let you talk a little bit about you and then we'll dive into the conversation. You covered all the all the key bases. Um just <laughs> all right, one, so doing my homework one, with one it small, one small correction this book is sell without selling out. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> people like to truncate it, leaving out the word out there, but it's yeah, sell without selling out. And I've been hosting my podcast, Sales Enablement Podcast, for some seven and a half years now. And congrats. Um, Thank you. Yeah. 1125 episodes or something along those lines, um, yeah. which, as you know, as a podcast, such a great, great journey because you get to meet all these interesting people that have new ideas and new perspectives. And so as much as sharing it with the audience, I've <laughs> learned a ton as yeah, well from doing it. So, and then, yeah, just speaking and coaching, consulting, you know, work with startups and sort of high performing individuals to help them take things to the next level. So yeah, keep my hand engaged. Yeah. That's awesome. So I was, again, doing a little research and mm. I came across, across a quote that you used and I really wanted to share it and kind of get your take on what it means to you because I think it's a great sure. way to kind of open up our conversation. So the quote is, if we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change, which is by right. Giuseppe Lampedusa. Lampedusa. Yeah. So Italian playwright. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, it was actually on your LinkedIn page and I was like, I really, really like this. It's interesting. So why is that your favorite quote or one of your favorite quotes and what does it mean? To you, well, is that there's no such thing as standing still, right? Especially in sales, it's such a performance-based profession. Yeah, is you know one of the traps I think people fall into is they say, "Yeah, I've mastered it, right? I got it. Yeah, yeah, I, I know how to do this." And the fact is that, especially if you're working in you know, any sort of industry with like the tech industry where things change so rapidly, I've spent four decades plus in the tech business, is it's never the same. I mean, just when you think you've mastered something, the environment you're in changes, the products, services you sell, the way people buy change. 
And you, so you have to be sort of endlessly adaptable and a continuous learner in order just to maintain your position. Yeah. And that's why this, I think the quote is so powerful is that too many sellers think, okay, yeah, I've got this. I know the product. I know the customer, you know, can sort of, I, I can do my thing, show up and do my thing and somewhat acting oblivious to everything that's changing around them. And suddenly they found themselves performing at levels well below maybe what they were before and uncertain about how to change it and wondering what happened and what happened is yeah the world kept changing and they didn't yeah and so yeah if you want to maintain a certain standard performance and maintain a certain lifestyle certain income you have to devote yourself to self-improvement on a daily basis yeah and it's interesting because the quote for me it resonated true because of another experience which i'll share in a second but Mm -hmm. it is definitely for me applicable across all of life right Oh, yeah. uh, and like, if you want to maintain, and you said it, your income or the, your lifestyle, doing what you did 10 years ago, it's not going to cut it. And mm-hmm. so today, especially in B2B, it is really like things are changing rapidly, especially on the sales side, I would say across the board, obviously. Sure. Um, so if your leadership or you as a revenue leader are not comfortable and open enough to say like, how do I look at this differently? Even when you're performing okay and performance is good. I think that's the ideal time to start thinking about change because you have the levity of being able to say, like, how do we do this strategically versus waiting until you have to be forced to do something. Uh, but it yes. would, the other conversation it made me think of in my early sales career, I had a sales leader tell me the same thing. He was like, I'm going to paraphrase what he said, sure. said it, but he basically said, if you're standing still, you're falling behind. Yeah, no, I say it sometimes that way too. It's, it's which is the same thing. Yeah, when I mean, you look at just the demands on sellers these days, take one example is is there's been a lot of talk, somewhat controversy in the sales world over the last yeah five ten years about what should sellers be doing on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. right? Is it just a platform for reaching out to engage with potential prospects, or do sellers need to have sort of a creator mindset? And if so, why? Yeah. And those people have really embraced this idea that LinkedIn is a platform for not just connecting, but also for showing something about yourself to help differentiate you. Because, you know, one of the key themes of my book, Sell Without Selling Out, and what I've talked about for years is that products and services these days, even more so than ever, are basically the same, right? I mean, almost every product category, this is not exclusive to the tech world, but good to use software as an example. Kind of take a product like conversational intelligence, right? You can record phone calls, analyze them, use the AI engine to analyze them for keywords and so on. Probably four dozen companies now that offer products in that space. Yeah. Uh, up from maybe two dozen two years ago and a dozen three years ago. Well, if you're a buyer in that space, the products are all the same. They all do virtually the same thing and they all cost virtually the same amount of money. So on what basis is the buyer making their decision? Well, they're making the decision and the data shows this and it's been showing this for some time now is the single biggest influence on their decision is their experience with the individual seller. So if you're in a market that's rapidly changing and you are meant to be the difference maker as a seller and you're not able to be that difference, then yeah, you're going to pay a price for that from a career perspective. And unfortunately, I think we're seeing too many sellers sort of fall into that gap, if you will, right now where... And we're going to get into AI, I know, later and potential impacts of that, but they're not making themselves the difference. They're not, they're ceding the territory to automation yeah. by not being able to differentiate, provide a differentiated buying experience for the buyer. What I always found interesting, and I've been mostly within healthcare, pharma, and tech, majority of my mm-hmm. career, I even when I was consulting, 
is that there is this perception to your point about majority of products being similar or the same, right? If you have a competitor, they know what they know how much you cost. They know your features and benefits. Mm-hmm. Like there's this weird internal thing of like, oh, they don't know. They know. So if you know, they know. Right. Oh, yeah. And in most yeah. cases, they are similar pricing schemes. Mm-hmm. They are probably similar features and benefits. Yes, you have some unique things, but more and more today, as we get more competitors, those are usually not the top value drivers, right? You could argue that we're special, we're a snowflake, et cetera. So to your point, if you guys are all, well, you, you never want to sell on price, right? Because that just turns into the race to the bottom of the barrel. Mm-hmm. But if we're all essentially the same in the marketplace, just like you said, how do you stand out? And the only really way to do that is through experience, through brand, through connection. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that is tough sometimes for revenue leaders that are very data-driven or metrics-driven of like, because it's, it's a little oh, yeah. squishy. Oh, it's addressed that specifically in my book. <laughs> so, so, so let's talk about that, actually, because I think it's an important conversation to have for those leaders that are kind of stuck might be a strong word, but not Absolutely. convinced yet to make action on these opportunities, yeah. we'll call them opportunities. Absolutely stuck, I think, is, I think it's especially true, I've been in the, more so in the tech world than elsewhere, because I sort of embraced the data first and then the tools that provided the you know, more tr- greater transparency into the sales processes and so on. Yeah. Yeah, it's still a human business and selling and buying. And there's lots of people who want to believe that we sell on the basis of our process, right? And Buyers don't care about process. They don't care about your process because, first of all, your process isn't aligned with how they're buying at all. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, this experiences still matter. And yes, there's been a shift in the marketplace the, in terms of the sort of number of products and the price and complexity of products that can be purchased on a sort of you know self service basis. And that that line is going to continue to move over time, right? I mean. Mm-hmm. It moved longer ago in the past than most people realize. I mean, companies like IBM were selling large mainframe systems via telephone years and years ago, right? Yeah. So it's not like that's that new, but that line is continuing to shift. And But the reason it's shifting, meaning more things are being bought sort of self-service, is that you know, buyers aren't adding any value or sellers aren't adding any value to the buyer during that process. You know, mm-hmm. As a sales channel, they're not adding anything to help the buyer make that decision. You know, they're not creating that experience for them to help them better understand the problems they're trying to solve or better understand the outcomes they can achieve more so than what the buyer can find online by themselves. Yeah. And Neil Rackham had written a book, gosh, 20 plus years ago about modern, the modern sales force. And I always remember this sort of point he makes in there, which you know, is absolutely true. He says, you know, in the absence of value, the buyer will always buy from the channel that <laughs> that provides the you know provides the lowest cost, yeah, right. And that's just the challenge for sellers in general is if you're not able to you know add something of value to the buyer in their journey. And I think that value really comes really at the front end in terms of helping them better understand the problems they're trying to solve and better understand the potential outcomes they can achieve by addressing those problems. Yeah, if you can't do that, then yeah, you know, they'll buy without you. Or as I said, in my book is especially when you see this true in the tech world in general. But in specifics, but in general, in the B2B space, there was a book came out, put out by the, some co-authors from the Franklin Covey organization sort of a year plus ago uh, called Strikingly Different Selling. And they had commissioned a ton of research uh, about buying behaviors and so on. And one of the things they found, and I think it was research with over 6,000 companies, I think, worldwide and in multiple industry segments about this research, at least, yeah, across multiple industry segments, that the average win rate 
of B2B sellers on deals 100K and higher. So 100K, okay. pretty, pretty modest sized deal these days, right? Yeah. 17%. Wow. 17%. So it's saying is across the B2B world, on average, the win rate on your qualified opportunities in your pipeline is you're winning fewer than one of every five of them. Now, you know, I look at my lifetime win rate, especially in the bulk of the sales I was doing, which is things from on-premise computer systems that today's dollars were half a million dollars to $100 million plus complex communication systems. Mm-hmm. Now, mine was 63%, basically two-thirds. Yeah. I think a, a minimum standard for sellers is if you can't win more than you lose, there's a fundamental issue that yeah. exists. But here we have on B2B, 17%. In the SaaS world, where yeah, a lot of listeners probably are, it's around 20%. What's going on? And that's, this is, to me, the fundamental issue of the day is that we basically have forgotten how to win. And there are whole organizations that exist in part of it's the model that's set up for how we, uh, you know, marketing and sales revenue combine to generate leads and so on in, in these businesses. Yeah. But at the end of the day, to me, that's a huge red flag for the sales profession. And it needs to change. It needs to be an emphasis not on process and not on the, this is sort of getting back to your point about the metrics that people are fixated on and not on the wrong metrics, but there's really one most important metric. And that is, are you able to win your deals? Because that's the buyer's vote on the experience they had with you. Yeah. Right. And so if your win rate as a seller is less than 50%, then basically what the buyer is saying is we bought from you in spite of you not because of you. Mm, that's interesting. And is that the position you want to be in? No, because then you become a commodity. Yeah, absolutely. Then you become a commodity because if you can't make a difference, then they might as well buy from the machines and they will. Yeah. But it's interesting to your point that going back to when you were selling, carrying the bag and even thinking about when I was doing it, we've had a, an explosion of sales tech in sure. that time. And it's and seemingly it seems like things have gotten worse. Like oh, the yeah. tools are supposed to help us sell better, more efficiently, more effectively. Why has that not worked? Because they <laughs> seem to be going in reverse order. It's supposed to be like a correlation of more tech, better, better selling, but that is not what's happening. Yeah. So I agree. And I've had this conversation on my podcast with academics and others who sort of study this. Is my contention is that the productivity of the individual salesperson as measured by true productivity, which is not activity, but you know, productivity as measured in the world is a rate of output per unit of input. And, mm-hmm. and so I've historically measured sales productivity saying, look, what, how many dollars of revenue generating per hour of actual selling time, not time in the day, but per hour. And you could track this. And we know that salespeople studies have been done for decades. Unfortunately, this figure has never really moved is that sellers spend about a third of their time actually yeah. selling, right? Yep. So for each of those 30%, 33% of your hours, how much revenue are you generating per each one of those? That's productivity. And I would contend, based on my observations and what little data that exists, that individual productivity for sellers has dropped over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. And the reasons, yeah, you know, part of it's the way we've set up. Part of the expectations, parts of focus on activities, the wrong set of metrics, I think. Taking the eye off the ball about the one that really matters, which is, are people buying from us? Yeah. And so we're in this cycle. Somebody sent me a 
message yesterday on LinkedIn asking me to write a post about something. And, was, and they said, you should write this post as that companies just need to stop prospecting until they learn how to sell. Meaning we've gotten really pretty good at filling top of funnel, but what's the point? And we're sort of, I guess, stuck in this vicious cycle is, is sales managers, and this is true, especially in the software world, say, look, you need to have certain ratio of pipeline coverage, right? Of, of opportunities to, to your forecast. Right. It's usually you know, 5x, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I believe, and I think the math will bear out, that if your win rate is going to be the inverse of your pipeline coverage requirement. So if you need 5x pipeline coverage, you're going to have a 20% win rate. Mm-hmm. So we're stuck in this vicious cycle. It's like, well, I need to have more prospects in order to make sure we hit our number. Well, yeah, but you're dooming yourself to the sort of low level of performance because you don't have enough time to really adequately work any one opportunity because right. you think you need to have someone in your pipeline. And so you're creating a, you know, a poor performance or a poor experience for the buyer. Related to that. And so we talked about this a little bit in my book, but I also talked about it in my keynote is that when I talk to sales and marketing leaders about this whole thing about aligning across their organization and Mm. that, in fact, it will make you both more effective than you would be on your own. It is hard a lot of times for them to wrap their head around that because they're so focused on their metrics and their goals. And I go, but your ability to win is so interconnected. The idea that you would not work with each other is completely absurd. Yeah. But convincing a lot of these leaders to step back, for instance. So, you know, I was talking to a sales leader once and I said, you know, what marketing needs to do is not focused on throwing as many leads to you as possible. 10,000 leads, but 90% of them is junk is really a waste of everybody's time. Right. I said, what they need to focus on is figuring out how to have higher quality leads, have better conversations, connect, really tell the story. And the first thing he said to me was like, but I can't get less leads. I said, but, and I'm going to assume, sure. you know, this is an intelligent sales leader, whatever, you wouldn't be the VP or whatever if you weren't intelligent. But I go, here's the thing. It's about, to your point, it's about the math. If you have higher quality leads, they're going to convert at a higher rate. So you don't need as many, but there's an emotional attachment to seeing 10,000 leads in your CRM versus sure. 5,000, right? And so I think there's this illogical connection to just volume that is hard for leaders to get out of. Oh, yeah. Well, for a couple of reasons. One is, most importantly, is they just don't know how to sell. Okay. I mean, think about it. If you're a sales organization and your win rate as an organization, let's say, is averaging 20% or 23% or whatever, you have to think about two things. One is, hmm, we can only win one of every five or one of every four of our most qualified opportunities. Do we really have product market fit? Well, I was going to ask, is it a sales (laughs) problem or is it a product problem? Well, so that's one question, right? You have to ask yourself. And the other question is, <laughs> do we really know how to sell? Yeah. And so I think it's too easy to shift the blame onto marketing and saying, oh, we're not getting good quality leads. When I think sales has the responsibility for saying, well, what comes into our pipeline? What are we accepting as a sales qualified opportunity? Mm-hmm. And that's where the problem starts. And then from there, it's, yeah, are we connecting? Are we building the connection we need to have to buyer to really dig deep, to really understand the things that are most important to them that we can help with and qualifying out the ones that we shouldn't be dealing with more quickly instead of playing the numbers game and taking comfort that I've got all these opportunities in my pipeline. Yeah. You know, opportunities in your pipeline that you're never going to win, or you have a very low probability of winning. It's just junk. Why are you taking comfort in that? (laughs) It's just junk. (laughs) It's just junk. And so 
if you are really in this environment where your win rates are 20% or so on, that is what's happening is most of your pipeline is just junk. And maybe some of it isn't junk and we just don't know how to deal with it either. Right. Yeah. So unfortunately what's sort of happened in many spaces is that when your win rates are like 20%, you've really, what you need to sort of stop selling. You've just turned sales into sort of a casino game. Right. Cause I know that if I'm just moderately good, that as long as we keep the deal flow coming through marketing, then I'll win one of every five. Yeah. Right. I'm going to yeah. play the odds. The numbers game. It's the numbers. I'm just playing the odds again, horrible place to be if you're in sales. And if you're a seller and you're in that environment, even if you're making your quota and, but you're only winning, you know, a slow, small fraction of your deals, terribly disheartening, right? Cause you're not really achieving anything that you could. You're leaving millions of dollars down the table potentially. And so this is really what I've at this phase of my career <laughs> really devoted myself to addressing is we need to be focused on win rate first and foremost. When I came up, that was the number one metric. That's what we focused on. Yeah. Are uh, you winning? Yeah. Are you winning? Are you creating experience? What's the buyer's, you know, that's the buyer's referendum on how well <laughs> they thought you did for them. We lost sight. Yeah. I'm running a startup cohort based course called selling school. Okay. That's really focused on this issue of win rate. And, but it's teaching the methods and so on. They're in my book, sell without selling out. And all the sellers coming into the cohort to a person don't know their win rate. These are oftentimes experienced AEs with 10, 20 years of experience. Wow. And it's like an eye opener to them. It's like, no, this is for you. This is the one that you need to focus on because this is the only one that says, how well am I doing? And yeah, we've seen dramatic improvements once people start focusing on it among the graduates, actually even the students, while they're still in the course, they start focusing on it. It's like, comes night and day difference for them. Yeah. Because yeah, this is what I'm trying to do. This is how I help my buyer by helping them make a decision. And if I do a better job of helping them make a decision, I'm going to win a higher fraction of my deals. Companies do better. I'm personally going to do better. So on. Do you feel that we have gotten distracted from the fundamentals of selling because of the explosion of technology and every, and everybody's racing to have the newest tool? And the reason I ask that, because it's, I reflect back on my, as a mm-hmm. junior seller, right? I tell the story all the time. I think it's the first time I had gone into this client. So I used to sell to physicians. I was in healthcare mm-hmm. sales uh, for some strange reason. To this day, I do not know why. Uh, I brought my manager with me on the first call. And I was junior. So it was just literally about proving that I knew my product, right? And right. so it was right. to show up and spit up, whatever. Yep. And I learned that after I got done. And I got put out. He was like, take your effing stuff and get out of my office, rude. Da-da. And, you know, and I didn't necessarily think I was being rude. I was right. just like proving to my manager that I had studied, that I knew my product. I didn't know any better, right? Mm-hmm. But I shared that because I got out of that conversation. I thought, I immediately thought I was going to get fired. And my manager goes, to his credit, he was like, well, that didn't go that great, did it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I go, no, it didn't. He's like, well, well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what happened so that you, he goes, first of all, breathe. You're not getting fired. Relax. Because he could tell like I was terrified. I was absolutely yeah, no, terrified. We've all been there. We've all been there. We've all been there. So he's like, right. you're not getting fired. He goes, this is a learning experience. Let's talk through like what went wrong. And so that's how I kind of learned about the show up and spit up. And what I learned in that moment was I hadn't done my due diligence to even learn about the needs of the customer. Mm-hmm. I hadn't come in and said like, hey, I'm Jeff Davis. I'm new to the territory. What's important to you? All that stuff I hadn't done. Because I was there more so to 
than to sell. Mm-hmm. I was there to show what I knew. Yeah. Which yeah. is not selling. That's just No, and this I is I don't know what that is. Well, unfortunately it is selling. So this is the theme of sell without selling out is is that when you're selling out, what you're doing as a, a buyer, as a seller, is you're putting your own interests ahead of those of the buyer. Okay. And the way we do that is by having this mindset that our job as a seller is to persuade someone to buy our product or service. And so if you go with that mindset of thinking, well, my job as a seller is to persuade somebody to buy my product or service, then it, you don't really care about what their needs are fundamentally. You really don't care about things that are important to them because, gosh darn it, my job is to persuade you to buy my product, whether yeah. you need it or not. And unfortunately, this is how we pretty much train sellers, right? Go pitch, make a case, persuade them. And so the opposite of selling out, do I write about in the book, is what I call selling in. And selling in is based upon four innately human attributes, connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. Yeah. And what I show in the book is how you use these to build the connections with your buyers at a human level that enable and open the door to credibility and trust, where you can then ask the deeper questions about the things and learn and really get to a level of understanding with the buyer about the things that are most important to them. and. Most sellers don't get to that point, right? Because they think, look, you fit my ICP. Therefore, you must have these three issues. Yeah. And this is how we solve those three issues. But the fact is that we're selling to people who are humans. And humans, while they may have needs that are similar to other humans in similar situations, we all look at our own situation as being unique. Yeah. Right? And this is a lesson I very fortunate to learn very early in my career is I was selling into the construction industry a lot. Okay. And so I was yeah, talking to like home builder after home builder, a road builder after road builder. And I forget the conversation I had with this one, one construction company CEO, but it was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, sure. He's thinking that, yeah, I'm similar, but my situation's different. And you're trying to make me sort of be like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And as long as you think I'm like everybody else, you're not understanding me. Right. Right. And this is the sort of gap that exists between knowing things about our buyers and really understanding what's most important to them. So that's why this third pillar of understanding is so critical is that most sellers don't make an effort to get to the level of truly understanding. And when you get to that point of understanding what's really most important to the buyer, then you're in a unique position because most sellers don't bother to get there. Suddenly the experience you're creating for the buyer is, is differentiated and you put yourself into an advantageous position to win the business. I like these, the, the four sell-in pillars. I want to do a, a double click on these before we shift over sure. to the ad conversation because I want to make sure that we get to that. But another story I'll share with the audience that when you say curiosity, that it sparked something in me. So I, this is many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. I went on vacation in Puerto Vallarta, you know, was getting away. I was living in San Francisco at the time. And I had signed up for something at the uh, the airport. They're like, if you go on this tour, you'll get a free massage. And I was just like, okay, okay yeah, whatever. Right. Um, and I wasn't really paying attention, but I was like, free massage, great, you know whatever. So I get there and I find out pretty quickly. I mean, I came from sales at the time I was a marketer, but I was like, oh, this is a sales pitch for a, um, what do you call this? Timeshare. Timeshare. Time yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I figured it out within like, I don't know, 15 seconds. It, <laughs> right. didn't, ta- it yeah. didn't take long. And I go, I said, okay, well, we'll just see how long this goes. Right. And so the guy comes over and, you know, nice guy and they feed you breakfast, all that kind of stuff. And I said, I said, 
he tried to do small pop, da, 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 da. And I let him do it, right? Because I've been there. And so I have a, a lot of empathy for sellers. And then also mm-hmm. when I was younger, I also was a server at a restaurant. Right. So those two professions get a lot of empathy out of me. And he did his whole pitch to start the conversation. And I said, well, here's what I want you to know. I have no interest in buying a timeshare. I said, however, if you want to continue down this path to show your manager or whatever, or practice, mm-hmm. I'm totally game. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have anything to do this afternoon. I just want my massage and I'll go through the whole show with you just so you can get whatever you need to get. And if you want right. to like abandon cart, that's cool. Whatever. Like, right. I'm here for it. And he was like, oh, no, but I think it's going to be great. Da, da, da. I was like, I'm telling you what I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes to the whole rigmarole and takes me around, you know, brings me to the closing table, so to say, and tries to do this hard sell. And the manager comes and, you know, they're like, oh, have another margarita. And I was just like, to your point about curiosity or just ask me the question of like, why do you, he never asked me, why are you not interested in buying a timeshare? Or why do you feel like this is not like a fit for you? Like none of those questions ever came out. It was just like, you need this. Well, yeah, well, that was the persuasion-based mindset, right? Regardless of whether you're, what your needs were, I, right. my job is to persuade you. Yeah. And, you know, the irony about that is that there's a research that was cited in a book called The Catalyst. It was written by a professor from uh, Penn, uh, Jonah Berger, that was about persuasion and so on. And research found that 100% of human beings, 100% universal, okay. have this thing called persuasion reactance. Meaning we all, when we think people are trying to persuade us, we put the fences up. Yep. So naturally, you know, we spend billions of dollars every year training salespeople to become more persuasive. <laughs> Yet it's the one behavior that every person in the world hates. Yeah. So, you know, it just doesn't make sense on the surface of it. So our buyers are under no illusion about who we are when we interact with them, right? They know we're salespeople. Yeah. But there's multiple ways to go about this. But I think the way that you sell and the way I frame selling in the book is, look, our job as sellers is really quite simple. It's, it's to listen to the buyer, understand the things that are most important to them in terms of problems they have and the outcomes they can achieve or they mm-hmm. want to achieve by addressing the problem and then help them get it. Yeah. And that's a completely different mindset than let me persuade you. Yeah. Right? Let me convince you that you need this. Let me convince you you need this. No, let me understand what's most important to you and then help you get that. And the thing that makes that so powerful is that it's really it's a life lesson as well if you have a (laughs) you want to build your relationship with your spouse or partner what do you do well you listen to understand the things that are most important to them and then help them get that yeah you have a colleague you're trying to do a project with to collaborate with what what should be doing first well i should want to listen to understand things most important to them and then help them get that yeah you know it just operates on levels throughout life this is the way we should be going through life is yeah we meet somebody we have an opportunity to help them. Let's make put the time and effort to build the connection that enables us to build some trust. Will they let us in? We can find out what's most important to them and then help them get that. If we do that, we'll succeed more often than not. So your four sell-in pillars. So for folks that were listening, I want to repeat these. This sure. connection, curiosity, understanding, yes. and generosity. So let's do right. a, a little bit of double click and kind of just sure. high level what you talk about in the book. Because well, let me step back. These are four you're saying that you need in order to be an effective seller. Yeah. Is that the I, premise? I would make the case they're basically, yeah, primarily what you need. Okay. Okay. So let's double click on each one of those and kind of share high level what you talk about in the book about each one of those. Right. So this is a human first approach to selling, right? Is okay. that we are wired. These are four human attributes we all possess. 
we're wired as human beings to want to connect with other people. It's ironic that we have sales trainers telling sellers, look, dispense with the small talk. Buyers don't have time. It's like, okay, well, let's just ignore these 20 shelf loads of books that talk about how essential small talk is to building a connection with another person. Yeah. And we have to build a connection. This is, yeah, because this connection at a human level is what enables us to start building a level of credibility and trust. And yet, again, you've got people today that are out shouting from the rooftop saying, buyers don't want relationships with, yeah, they don't want to be your friend. They never wanted to be your friends, right? But you are, by virtue of selling to them, you are connected. You are in a relationship with the buyer. So the connection, what we take through in the book is just some simple ways to start answer the question for the buyer because everybody asks the question universally yeah. when you start dealing with someone, why you, right? Why you? Why should I invest my time and attention in you as an individual? Because mm-hmm. I have a lot of choices, a lot of demands on my time. Why you? And so building that connection helps you answer that question. Once you build that connection, it starts opening the door to trust, then there's curiosity. One thing before you go to curiosity, which I want to bring up because uh, I know a lot of folks are struggling with this kind of tran- this transition to digital, right? And mm. they use the excuse of, well, you can only really make that in person. And what I see a lot of times missed opportunities is you can develop a connection via digital. But like, for instance, when people reach out to me on LinkedIn, there's kind of two camps. There's the, I'm going to keep sending you messages to have mm-hmm. a touch point which usually sounds something like, I haven't heard from you. Are you dead? Mm. Uh, uh, maybe, you missed my, <laughs> maybe you missed my first eight messages, or I wanted to bubble this up to the top of your, like those are all non-value add connections yeah. or touch points. Right. The different ones, the ones that do differently are, hey, I don't know if you're interested right now, but here's an article or here's a piece of information that might help you better understand why this is, how yes. this impacts your business or how this could drive revenue for you. Let's talk if it makes sense. Or other people in your industry have, are struggling with this issue or I've seen this change. Here's some more information about it. Let me know, if, whatever. Like those are two fundamentally different ways to approach it. Mm-hmm. And I would argue the second one, to your point, is building a connection because I no longer, or I'm beginning to not just see you as somebody that wants to get on my calendar and wants to sell me something, but you actually want to help. You have a vested interest. You understand that's maybe a challenge and you're trying to suss out whether or not it is something I'm struggling with or it is a problem for me before pushing product on me. So I wanted to add that because I think we sometimes miss that in the digital realm of just pushing stuff at people versus trying to create a connection. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. And yeah, I call what you described. I've written about that before. I call it value-based persistence, which is- in this digital world, why, if we have somebody that we're sort of following up on a periodic basis or nurturing the opportunity or potential opportunity is, yeah, why would you ever reach out and just say, hey, just checking in when you could, hey, I'm going to set up Google alerts for this company or based on these keywords relating to this company and what they're yes. doing. And yeah, I'm going to be fed a stream of articles and white papers and links every day that I could send something to a yeah, person I'm following up on and say, yeah. Hey, I read, came across this article this morning, you know, dear so-and-so. Hey, I came across this article about uh, this morning about X, right? You know, that relates to the decisions perhaps that you have to make. I found two things in there really interesting. Would you be free Tuesday at 9 a.m. to talk about it? Yeah. And suddenly what you've done is you sent them something that potentially has value. You tease a little bit saying, look, there are two things in here I found that I thought you might find really interesting. A free Tuesday, you know, a specific time to, to talk about it. That's how you follow up with people. Which is is scalable if you have an ICP. So essentially, and obviously you have to personalize it a little bit, but if you have an ICP that essentially is very similar, Mm -hmm. that is something that should be applicable 
to pretty much all of them. I mean, you might have to change the, sure. the two things you talk about. Sure. So it's not necessarily this whole, like, I got to do an article for each individual customer that's in the pipeline. That's a scalable way of creating more of a human connection. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. And, and I would argue it's an opportunity also, and I say this a lot, for marketing to develop those resources or find those resources so that the salespeople can utilize them instead of yes. just making sellers do all the research and find these articles and it gets back to productivity, right? This is That's a thing that marketing does already. We already yeah. do that. So yeah. why not package it for salespeople to be able to deliver and create that personalized connection? Right, because what you're doing, at, when if marketing helps with that or if the salesperson ends up doing it themselves, the point being is that at the end of the day is you're educating the buyer to say, look, Again, busy buyer, they've got three constraints. Well, they got multiple constraints, but you know, they have limited time, limited attention, limited resources. Mm-hmm. And so they have to make a decision about how they're going to devote that time, attention, resources to anything that comes across their desk, whether it's email or comes across social or whatever. So you want to train the buyer that you're worth the investment of the time, attention, and resources. Yeah. And if it's just doing check-in calls and emails, They've already forgotten about you yeah. um, and they're scrolling right past you. But if you train them, and I, a great story about this, there was a software company uh, that I was working with at one point and they were sort of struggling with this whole idea of being able to the sellers to be able to connect and nurture their prospects and so on. But <laughs> they kept hearing that their customers in particular said, well, yeah, there's only one thing from your company that we read on a regular basis. What was that? Well, some engineer had taken the initiative to put together a technical newsletter on his own that he was sending out to customers. CEO didn't even know about it. And yet the customers were saying to a person, the customer saying, oh, this is so valuable. We read that, but we don't read anything else. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you have to train the customers that, hey, what I'm sending has value and it's worth your time to open it. And if you do that, yeah, that's part of that connection you've made. They start saying, "Okay, well, I'm going to start trusting that this person's communications with me are worth the time. Right. That's connection. That's trust. Again, that then opens the door to curiosity. And unfortunately with discovery these days is that curiosity is sort of treated as, or discovery, excuse me, sort of treated as just like a survey taking, right? You know, here's the questions we ask and we need you to check check box, check box. Yeah. Instead of saying, well, Hmm, how can I deploy my curiosity in an authentic way to, go deeper, right? To begin to understand what's most important to the buyer. So the book, I provide six categories of questions that you can easily tailor that cause buyers to think more deeply. And somebody says, well, you know, sellers or buyers no longer want to talk to salespeople. And it's like, sure, but I would make the argument that in the recorded history of humankind, that buyers have never wanted to talk to salespeople, <laughs> right? I mean, at the top when, of the list. Yeah. I, I mean, I had great relationships with my customers, but yeah, none of them wake up in the morning and say, gosh, I hope Andy calls me. <laughs> um, but the fact of the matter is that they need to talk to salespeople, yeah. right? Because they've got a job to do, to gather and make sense of this bunch of information in order to make a formed decision. Yeah. And so the self-aware organization knows that Sort of that there's things they don't know and there's questions they don't know to ask themselves and they need to talk to sellers in order to have those, somebody ask those questions, I would, you know, to have them think of things differently than mm-hmm. they were thinking about them before. And so if you're unable to do that again, as a sales organization, then yeah, you're just a commodity sale. But you, you made a strong delineation 
on the way in which you question. I think there's, again, two camps kind of came out of that conversation that, but what I heard you say is there is the one where the intent is to lead you down a path to my product, right? Mm -hmm. You're just asking questions to get them to this flow chart of yes, no, yes, no, or back them into having to say yes. Right. The other one is genuinely helping them think differently and deeper about their current challenges or the way they go to business and go to market which may ultimately lead to your product, but it gets them in the space to say like, I probably should consider this category of solution, not necessarily your brand you know, right now, yes. but to say, you probably need a CRM. You know what? You're right. And let's talk about which one is right for you. Like that's a different level of conversation, but I've at least got you through the reason that you're not able, and I'm making this up, right? Yeah. The reason you're not able to manage your deal flow or the reasons that you know you have no idea what customers are saying or doing is because you don't have a CRM. I'm not saying you need Salesforce. I'm just convincing you first that you need a CRM. Yeah, I think the way that sellers need to look at this is that there's really three stages in a buying process. And the first stage is what I call the what stage. Second stage is the how stage. The third stage is the who stage. Okay. The what stage. What's my problem? And what are the outcomes we can achieve by addressing it? That's the first thing buyers go through. Yep. Right? So if you're in there pitching your product, when they still don't really understand what their problem is. It doesn't connect. It doesn't connect. And this is the fundamental mismatch that happens in sales. I show up, I pitch instead of leading with connection, curiosity, understanding to get to a point where I say, okay, well, how can I align what we do with what your most important things are? So we've just got this mismatch from the beginning. And so this is what buyers want is they first of all say, look, this is what I need from you as a seller. I mean, yeah, if you can't provide it, I'm going to buy it from you know self-service model. That's great. <laughs> but if you can, this is where you really begin to differentiate yourself. But also as a seller, this is where you begin to influence the choices and trade-offs the buyers make. To ultimately influence what the decision they make about what product or service to buy. Because it's in this stage that you as a seller work with the buyer to create what I call the vision of success. Okay. Right? If, if you can go in and get this level of understanding about what's driving them, you know, what's most important to them. And there's always one thing in every deal, every opportunity, there's one thing that's more important than all others. And as a seller, it's your job to find out what that thing is. And once you've identified that, then you can work with the buyer and say, okay, well, what's success going to look like if you address in this one thing and achieve this thing that's most important to you? Yeah. Suddenly you've identified the target. So if you as a seller have created basically the target, what the target is in the buyer's mind, Everybody else is playing catch up. Yeah. So then when you go to the second stage, which is the how stage, which is, okay, well, now we know what we want to do and what we want to accomplish. Now the question is, how are we going to get there? And this is when the buyer then goes into the market and they start talking to sellers, you know, more generally and look at other vendors and so on. But if the template for what success looks like is based around your solution. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. And everything, you start influencing the choices they make during the how. And that's where the house phase is really where they make the trade-offs about, well, we could do this or this or this or this because we're trying to get to this template of what success looks like. And so what sellers don't understand is you then get to the third stage, which is the who stage. That's really the least important decision the buyer makes. Third order decision. Who are we going to do this with? Yeah. We know what we want to achieve and how we want to do it. Well, if you've done your job. You should be the natural fit. Yeah, you're the natural fit, right? It's not a guarantee. You can still screw it up, but, but you're the natural fit. And I came across this, you know, Again, relatively early in my career, selling to enterprises where I was like, so I was, woke up one day at this one deal I was working on. I was like, wait a second, the way they're talking, I think I've won this. But I knew we were still months away from getting an order. But it's like, oh, yeah, we're marching on the path that 
yeah, all the decisions and discussions are around my product, right? Yeah. And how it's going to shape the ultimate solution for them. It was like, oh. And so for me, it was this epiphany to say, look, yeah, I need to have these conversations early and shape the discussion yep. up front as much as I call it front loading value. I need to front load value and not look at sales as sort of this continuum where it sort of gets better as you go along. It's like, no, you make it good up front, right? You have the big impact up front. Yeah. And then you build off of that as opposed well to sort of this aggregate approach to you know the customer that makes the decision. It's like, no, I want the decision made, effectively made. <laughs> Well, one third of the way through the deal. Yeah. And so that's why this whole idea that sellers get seduced by this idea that they keep hearing the data that buyers are 70% of the way through their decision process before they interact with buyer sellers for the first time. And all these analyst firms sort of tout this. And it's like, yeah, that's not the case at all. If you thought that was the case, that means you're showing up to talk to the buyers when they're in the how or the who stage. If that's the case, you're not influencing it at all. No. You don't have a choice. You're, you're a commodity. It's be priced. You're out of the game. So that's, and I don't, that's just not the way buyers are operating. Yeah. So it's, you have to sort of separate that out as you're a seller and just say, yeah, your ability to influence and win really starts as that first stage of the what stage, helping the buyer think differently about their problem that they're solve, they're, they're trying to solve, think differently and more broadly about the outcomes they can achieve. If you do that, you dramatically increase your odds of winning. So connection and curiosity. curiosity. Now we're at understanding and generosity. Yeah. Well, understanding is, as I said, getting to that level of understanding where you understand the thing that's most important to the buyer. Okay. And you know, I can walk back over 40 plus years in sales and every opportunity I've won and lost. And there was always one thing that was more important than all the others. Doesn't matter. Doesn't mean that the decision was solely based on that. Yeah. But it had outsized influence on and making sure that you can make the buyer feel that you understand what that is becomes a huge differentiator. I spent most of my career as carrying a bag or building sales teams of in startups, tech startups. So we're selling mission critical communication systems. So we're competing with yeah, multi-billion dollar organizations and we were nothing. <laughs> and, and yet we were quite successful growing pretty rapidly and very successful competing against the big guys because yeah, I write about this in the book. Yeah. One opportunity I won a big telecom company in Europe which I thought we had no, no business winning, but we did. When I asked the CEO of the, the buyer why, why we won, she says, because you're the only one that made me feel understood. Wow. And that's huge value for the buyer, right? Yeah. So being able to transcend the checkbox survey mentality of discovery and really digging down and understanding there is, everybody has their one thing. Yeah. You have to get to the level of understanding what that is and helping the buyer know that you understand it. Yeah. Uh, again, tremendous source of value for them and for you as a seller. So my talk about the book is just sort of how to, how to do that, you know, how to go beyond the questions, how to sort of navigate through the sort of three stages of understanding to get to the point where the buyer feels, you feel confident, the buyer feels confident, you understand what's really driving the decision. Yeah. And then that's, yeah, you align your solution to that value that they want to receive. And then generosity is just about how do you be an effective giver? Right. Because okay. this idea of being a giver has really got a bad name, like in the challenger sale. They talked about the relational seller that just gives, 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 gives. And, and I had Brent Adamson on my show, co authors of the challenger sale. And we yeah. sort of gave him a hard time and acknowledged that they sort of went overboard on that because it's not bad to be a giver. It's bad to be a, an unrestrained giver mm-hmm. of value because you're just sort of taking a scattergun approach to things, right? <laughs> Hoping something <laughs> sticks. 
Right. Whereas you're very deliberate and precise about it, then it has tremendous value for the buyer. And so I talk about the generosity section is really helping sellers understand what value means to a buyer. And what I believe in sales is the litmus test is that value means progress, meaning that every time you have an opportunity as a seller to interact with a buyer is as a result of that interaction, is the buyer closer to making a decision as a result of talking to you than they were beforehand? And if they were, then that had value for them. If they're not, it had no value for them. And so that just becomes, you know, sort of, as I said, your litmus test. And so as a sales leader, or even as the individual contributor yourself, is you should be able to look at every opportunity in the pipeline and be able to answer two questions. One is, what does the buyer need from us right now in order to make progress toward making a decision? And B, as a result of receiving that value from us, what steps will they commit to take next? I think it's also those two questions are also good coaching questions. And I don't, you know, oh, yeah. we definitely we don't have time for the whole coaching conversation. So maybe I'll have you back on. Um, <laughs> but I do think that is as I look as a CRO or sales leader of saying like, OK, let's, we're doing a pipeline review. Mm. Let's let's ask these two questions because that oh, yeah. gets down to what do we need to do next? Well, but it gets to the point is, does the seller understand the buyer? Yes, that's even right? better. So in, yes. the, in the understanding chapter, there's three stages of understanding that apply both the seller and the buyer, Yeah. right? Does the seller understand where the buyer is, understand what's most important to the buyer and so on. And so that is, as you're doing a pipeline review, as you're doing a coaching session on pipeline with a seller, this becomes sort of the acid test for them is, yeah, do they really understand what's happening in their accounts? Yeah. because if you ask them, what does the buyer need from us right now in order to make progress toward making a decision? If seller doesn't know the answer to that. Well, what are they doing? Right. I mean, that's a huge red flag saying, look, OK, we need to have some more intensive coaching on some earlier stages of the selling process because you should never have that where yeah. you don't understand what the buyer needs from you. I love that. So I think you, my audience would be very upset with me if I did not ask you about AI and sales before we close out. So <laughs> this will be our last topic because I always try to be sensitive to people's time. So, and I probably should have started with the conversation with AI and sales. So there's a lot happening. Obviously, yes. chat GPT, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. But I specifically want to get your insights and your thoughts on how AI can and will transform sales. Which then it was a very big question, but yeah, yeah, the big ones. Let me answer it a different way. Okay. Is hundred percent believe that the the future of sales is more human, not less. I would hundred percent agree. And it was a great book called "Humans Are Underrated," written by Jeff Colvin. He had also written the book, uh, the New York Times bestseller, Human, uh, "Talent Is Overrated." But humans are underrated. His book he wrote about sort of the impact of yeah artificial intelligence and machine learning and technology on employment and how it disrupts employment and so on. Yeah. But based on his research, talking to all these experts and I, he concluded that for those people who can be top achievers in the 21st century and beyond, are those people who learn how to become more intensely human, meaning mm. learn how to master those human attributes that will always be the weaknesses of machines. Yeah. And so yeah, it's for that reason. I think that's the impact that AI is going to have on sales is those sellers who, uh, yeah, I talked earlier about how the bar is going to move in terms of the range of products that we purchase sort of a self-service model. Right. And there's going to be more automation in that. But we also talked about the importance of differentiation and the experience of the buyer is that given how these generative AI systems pull from the past in order to create the content you're asking, there's no reason to believe that 
one machine's interface to the buyer is going to be any better than any other machine's interface with the buyer. Yeah. And so, well, I think that one of the impacts of AI is, as we're seeing it so far is that, yeah, you can use tools like chat GPT and the next iteration that's coming and so on is to say, yeah, it sort of raises the bar, let's say on the bottom to some degree, because what we're seeing in terms of the outcomes from it is that, sure, there's a lot of errors that, that exist in it. That's one thing, but yeah, it has certain competence to it, right? It's yeah. not, you see the output, it's not, it doesn't have spark to it, right? It's perhaps not human. Though it can fool you in many cases, but it's, but I mean, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty but good. It's, but it's competent. And that's what yeah. people are saying. It's competent. Yep. That's great. The more, if it provides the ability for more sellers, especially those that are on the lower levels to be able to learn how to use the tool to come across as more competent, whether it's in their email communications or some form of written communication they're doing with buyers. That's great. Right. Yeah. But I say that sort of ra- sort of transforms the general buying experience from one of blah to meh, right? Uh-huh. And where the opportunity still exists is for somebody to differentiate themselves above that, to be more creative, more connected, more understanding yeah. in ways that yeah, the machines just can't and they won't for a long period of time. And this is the opportunity for sellers to say, look, I need to learn how to lean into the human side of things and the things that come innate to me in order to continue to be a source of value and differentiated value to the buyer. And I think key among that is something I talked about before, which is, and this is one thing that uh, has already been tested to some degree as sort of one of the shortcomings of AI systems in the medical decision-making field. Okay. Uh, they've had these AI-driven systems for patients. And there was once I had seen an abstract uh, or, yeah, abstract of the study and said that trust levels actually with these systems sort of begin to decline over time. Okay. And the reason being is that patients feel, well, it doesn't understand that my situation is unique. Okay. Right. Yes. I may have some condition that 2 million other people share, but doctor, you don't understand. I feel different than they do. Right. It's mine's, And we all have that as human beings. We all think our situation is unique. Yeah. And this is true. Yeah. I talked about earlier in sales is it didn't matter who I sold to. They could be the same company or same type of company as a dozen others are sold to. On the outside, it looks the same, but in their mind, the situation's unique. It's different. It's the ability to understand that perspective of the buyer, what makes them unique, machine's never going to be able to do. And that's where being more human really becomes important. So we use the technology, and we're using AI today in sales to automate tasks that free sellers up to have more time to engage with their buyers. To increase productivity. Opens the door to increasing productivity, yes. right? Only if they actually start winning the deals that they, <laughs> then their productivity goes up. Yeah. Yeah. It opens that door for sure. And then it will automate some tasks at a more competent level. If I think for some sellers, maybe, you know, there's some guys, yeah, you know, let's say you have to self-source leads. You can't rely on marketing. You have to have, and oftentimes sales organizations, as they want individual contributors to self-generate a third of their leads, let's say, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not a great email writer or yeah, you know, maybe don't have the flair, then yeah, I think the tools are gonna help that a lot. And so perhaps it opens the door to more conversations. But once you're in that conversation, yeah, you gotta be more human. And that's where you're gonna be able to create these differentiated experiences. 
And machines not really going to help you with that as much as you think. I mean, there's tools that exist already, sort of AI driven, where you know you can have it. They can be listening while you're doing a live conversation with the buyer, and they can prompt you on screen. Hey, you mentioned this keyword. Hey, bring this up, and so on. Yeah, I think there's some value to that. Yeah. But at some point, you have to stand on your own two feet and have a conversation with somebody, build that level of trust, understand what's most important to them and how they think uniquely about their product and their or their problem. Excuse me. And the outcomes they want, that's going to take a person. And this goes back to the question I asked earlier about how do you change the perspective of a revenue leader that is focused on only data-driven metrics, right? I think that the opportunity moving forward, and I love you sharing your perspective about how AI is going to, I would say, influence sales, augment sales, make sales better, whatever the right terminology is. But it's that focus, opportunity really is that focus on increasing our humanity and increasing our ability to understand the psychology of buyers. I think all of those kind of soft, squishy things are really what are going to differentiate sales teams moving forward. And that's Mm. where people need to invest time, money, and energy, not learning how to use a CRM, not learning how to use the new latest tech. And it sounds like you kind of on the same page is that is going to be the differentiator because that impacts the whole experience that impacts you understanding the nuance of what makes them unique. You can't do that through tech alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah. I think the way to look at it is we become pretty adept at taking humans and training them how to be sellers where we fall down and don't spend any time is taking sellers and training them how to be human. Yep. And so that's what we're doing with selling school we talked about is that's the focus. And this is the focus of sell without selling out as well is we overtrain sellers. Quite frankly, we train them on process and products and the com- customer and so on. We, and we think, Oh gosh, we've got a performance problem. Let's give them more sales training of the type they already have. Well, but the fact is that we put that category of training them into what they know, right? Yeah. Well, it's like pouring liquid into a glass that's full. It just overflows. It doesn't stick. It's not helping them at all. And so you can train sellers into knowledge or you can train them into improving who they are, right? And that's really what the buyers react to is, who is this person I'm dealing with? Are they making an attempt to look at things from my perspective, authentically, really look at things from my perspective, really understand my point of view? Are we developing this connection we need that I can build some level of trust in the advice they give and the things they're talking about? And those are trainable. Those perspectives about being able to connect, being able to use your curiosity, being able to be more empathetic in an effective way that has a benefit to the buyer, unlike the way we train empathy today, they're all trainable. So people can become more intensely human. And that's really the path to success for them going forward. Yeah. So net net, as we close out the podcast, be more human. Yeah. <laughs> Start by reading my book. Sell Start by reading. Wait, say the name again because I, I butchered it in the beginning of the show. Sell, <laughs> sell without selling out. And the subtitle is A Guide to Success on Your Own Terms because it talks to an issue that you've raised a couple times on this podcast, which is that, yeah, one of the challenges for sellers is to become more intensely human, to, to sell in a more authentic human way. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to make your sales manager a little uncomfortable if they're really wedded to data. Because yep. they're going to say, oh, yeah, follow the process of these activity metrics. It's like, no, well, no, there's a better way to do this. And if I follow this, uh, I'm going to win more deals. <laughs> I'm going to win a higher fraction of my deals. I'm yeah. a much more productive seller. So 
we're causing a lot of conversation to take place as well. I love it. And Andy Paul, how can people find you online or get in contact with you? What's the best way for listeners if they want to learn more about your work? Sure. Uh, to connect with you. I'll go to Lincoln. I'm there quite a bit. So yeah, you can search Andy Paul. I'm, I think the LinkedIn handle is real Andy Paul. So normal. And then you can always email me, Andy at andypaul.com. Yeah. You have one of those names that's a lot easier than mine. You put Jeff Davis on LinkedIn and like 20,000 people show up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I never tell people just search on LinkedIn because I'm like, yeah. hey, it'll be a, it'll be a long time before you find me. So yeah, well, I think I'm, yeah, probably the, the most noticeable Andy Paul when it comes to the sales world. Yeah. So yeah. Well, as always, I learned a lot. I learned a ton. Thanks I, for having I, me. Of course. I, I always love connecting with you because you have a wealth of experience, but you also are able to distill down kind of what you know and have read into a way that's easily consumable. And I think that's one of the things that I'm striving for this particular podcast is how do we marry kind of this academic understanding with practical application mm -hmm. and then serve that in a way that people can actually like go into the office tomorrow or talk to their team and say like, look, we don't know all the answers yet, but here are two or three things that we need to start thinking about let's put these into practice. And so I think you definitely did that. And I hope that people will either reach out to you on LinkedIn and follow you and or pick up a copy of the book. All right, Jeff, thank Always you very much. Time. Yeah. Oh. Gosh, time flew. I didn't I know, right? Or, yeah, it was, it was a good conversation. I so. hope this wasn't meant to be a half hour podcast. So. Uh, well, it can no. be two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Rev Engine Podcast. I hope today's episode provided you with some actionable insights that will help you begin the process of transforming your organization to a high-performing revenue engine. If you found today's episode valuable, we ask that you support the show's growth in three ways. First, share the episode with your friends and colleagues. Second, follow me on social media at MeetJeffDavis on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. And finally, give us feedback on who you'd like to see on the show next. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us next time where we continue the conversation on how to build a high-performing revenue engine.